three, two, one, clap. Whoa, we don't need to clap. <laughs> Maybe we should just applause. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Three, two, two one. one. Superb. Good job, gents. And we're back in the room. Is this really happening? <laughs> yes. It's really happening, guys. Hey folks, welcome. We hey, are hey, hey Dave and Mark, welcome. Hey welcome. Chris and Dave. Hi, I can see you. You're over there. You're over there. You're not <laughs> just on my screen. Disembodied heads. It's the first time, well, since Christmas, mm-hmm. and then there was another nine months before yeah, that. And we well. all know how Christmas ended. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I do. I don't think you do. <laughs> I don't think you. Nobody. I was bluffing there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. As Dave says, we're back in the room. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mark Fraser. That is. Uh, David Weaver. You That's should know me. that by now. That is. <laughs> That's Chris Cusack over there. Yeah. Um, I've heard you, some people say it is in the past, particularly if we're not from our country, that they can't tell who's who. <laughs> really? Yeah. Should we all adopt a part of the vocal range and stick with it? Can I go really high? I can go really low. I'll go really medium. It's <laughs> <laughs> great stuff, guys. Flawless. All right, here we go. Oh, I can't do medium. That's really hard to do. It's like a steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either. So yeah, we we are sustained by your loving and caring donations And if, if you quite like what we do You can go to our website, unsungpod.net forward slash donate You can give us a one-time donation via PayPal there A.K.A. the tip jar The tip jar Or you can do an ongoing subscription on our Patreon Which is also linked there We have many cool features Including some sweet-ass bonus content Which we're going to record some of again probably next week the bonus content's the best content. I mean, if you like this shit that we put out to the general public, you'd you'd be absolutely wrapped with our bonus content. Yeah, yeah, it's like the fat on a bit on bacon, <laughs> the best bit. <laughs> it's like the wee white fake bit on tempeh that they draw yeah, it's on. Concentrated. Um, <laughs> right, Mark. So this week was your choice. It was aye. This is a uh, circle takes a square, and it's their debut album uh, as the roots under. Rejoice, rejoice! I know I'm Which I picked kind of a little bit influenced by Dave's choice last week. It was something I hadn't listened to for a long time. And I've, I was, I've been thinking about doing them for a while. We haven't really done a screamo and what that means. And it means quite a lot. And I kind of want to talk about that itself. Not just this kind of it, but also mm-hmm. the mainstream kind of it, which doesn't really seem related to it. We'll, we'll talk about that in a wee second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more modern version of it, which is, I actually like quite a lot, Um Wrong. <laughs> all of all, all of that and more. Um, so uh, can we lay the groundwork here? Now we spoke only about six weeks ago about how we had never and probably would try to avoid ever doing a math rock mixtape. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, math rock. As much as on paper, there's a lot of stuff about it that I like. It's so fucking punishing. Mm-hmm. This was fucking punishing. Yeah, I mean, as someone actually likes this genre of music, listening to it solid for a week is not a fucking good idea. Mm. <laughs> um, How did you fare, Dave? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I'll, we'll talk about the album itself and how I sort of responded to that later. But it, it's interesting that Screamo, I was surrounded by Screamo fans at uni. I lived with like Ultimate Screamo fan for like two years. Um, it has a lot of things that I like. And yet, I've just never really caught on to it. Mm. Certainly not early Orridge Screamo mm. like this. Scrams. Yeah, exactly. There are a couple of bands that um, that I got into that definitely have big Scrams influences or, you know, 
could be a scrams band, but they weren't part of the scene. But um, yeah, it, it it's a genre that I'm really tempted by, and then I try it, and I'm like, oh, yep, nothing's grabbed me, or it's really quite dissonant and annoying, <laughs> or mm-hmm. I don't know. And maybe it was maybe I just never got into it at the right age. You know, maybe I was if you're 16 and feeling emotional and you get into it then that's when it grabs you but when i was 16 i just wanted to listen to pantera so didn't, <laughs> didn't give a shit about this it's, it's it rarely settles into a groove and i think that's i think it's quite erratic we'll, we'll talk a wee bit mm-hmm. about that but uh it's as a result you're constantly bobbing about your mm-hmm. attention doesn't get to just rest anywhere and it's also very confrontational and yeah. full-throated literally so I mean, it's it's there's plenty of cool stuff to discuss about it, but it was really hard work this week. Not gonna uh, lie, yeah, definitely. especially when I've got a, like basically a three and a half day hangover. <laughs> My God, today I was just catching up and I was feeling, oh, I just want to lie in a bath and listen to <laughs> Mozart. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so this this was 2004. This album, yep. but uh, Screamo goes way before that mm-hmm. and also way after that so yeah let's mm. can we do like a really quick introduction of the band and then i'd love to kind of take a, little yeah. bit, a look at the legacy of screamer yeah so circle takes a square are from savannah georgia um and they kind of came about upon uh, in the apex of the first wave if you want to call it of screamo uh savannah georgia mm. we've been there before mm-hmm. we have. in mm. the context of our baroness episode yep. um yeah and it was interesting i didn't realize that they were from uh, Savannah but like so much of that like stoner doom stuff came from Georgia and mm. Savannah um, that this band didn't quite fit in it's I think there's a bit more of it on their second album Decompositions mm. um, yeah. we'll talk about that in a wee second as well because uh, there's a lot of things that are interesting about this band in terms of how many records they've done how long they've been a band and how little <laughs> they've done even though they toured like fuck so they came about in the year 2000 uh, formed by Drew Speciale and uh, Kath- Kathleen Coppola Stublik and uh, also had a, a singer called Robbie Rose, uh, a, a guitarist called Colin Kelly, and a drummer called Jay Wine or Jay Winnie, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, they had well had I think, a lot of different lineups. Yeah, their Robbie career. Rose left before this album, mm-hmm. I believe, because uh, they're only a trio in this album. Yeah, they had a, a second guitarist, Colin Kelly, the second guitarist, Bobby, it was at Scandifio or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, and David Rabator. So none of them were there when this was. Uh, recorded. Yeah. They also had a uh, variety of drummers, Jay Wynn, who I think was there until about 2004, so mm. I'm assuming this one. Yeah. Uh, Josh Ortega, Caleb Collins, uh, but Drew Speciale and Kathleen Stubelik Coppola, or Coppola Stubelik, maiden name Stubelik, uh, who married the band's sort of honorary fourth member, their, their producer and live producer and stuff like that. Um, yeah, uh, as you say, there's a lot of different people in and around them, but yeah, Drew and Kathleen or Kathy are the the main ones. Uh, two albums, which is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the debut in 2004. Uh, Decompositions Volume 1, 2012, yep. full eight years later. Mm-hmm. Um, they started this a self-titled EP in 2001, uh, the year after they formed. There is one. Like 
between that and this album, 2002, they released a split EP with a really significant early screamo band called Page, Page 99. 99. Um, uh, regarding their take on their music, I mean, the band are often quoted as having said that uh, they just consider themselves punk rock from 2004. Um... I don't think that's true. I think that's like sort of deliberately quite coy because clearly there's a lot more going on in this music than just being a punk rock band. It's it's much more savvy and self-aware and all those time signatures and things like that. It, it is punk rock, but it, there's a, there's there's way more to it. They also uh, I saw some claims about them being pioneers of emotional post-hardcore scene. Um, I think I think that seems like a little bit unrealistic given. You know, the band arrived really in 2001 and this was in 2004. There's a mm. hell of a lot happening, uh, not least Far, who we've yeah. covered, and loads and loads of other things with Texas The Reason and all that kind of mm. stuff that were starting to blur the kind of screamy mm. boundaries between melodic and interesting and post-hardcore and, and hardcore and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there was already a lot happening, but this is kind of widely seen as being I mean, one of the most uh, significant albums. I think it was like number three in Sputnik's top 100 albums of the decade mm-hmm. in, in, in 2010 when they were doing their 10-year retrospective. I mean, so that's like... I mean, Sputnik covers a lot of good stuff. That's that's high praise. Uh, it's seen as being one of the most influential hardcore, post-hardcore albums of all time, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I, de- I think definitely think they fit our unsung um, ethos quite well. They are they don't really they've not toured since two thousand and fifteen. They've not done anything musically since then. It looks like um, I know Kathleen's in another band. I can't remember their name just now. She's in an indie band now. Um, she's still quite active on Instagram. The band are still quite active on Instagram, just posting lots of pictures of old stuff. Um, uh, this record was seen as being quite influential, but it came about at a time when I guess who are they really influencing? You know what I mean? Like it's, it feels as though one of the things about this whole screamo scene is that they're all just influencing each other, but it didn't really seem to be going much wider than that, which is fine. Music scenes can do that, and a lot of really mm. successful music scenes do that. But this was not this kind of music was never about that. Um, and I they, cer- they certainly weren't courted by major labels or anything. I don't absolutely think. not. No, it, it's interesting though because. So Screamo, uh, the case I'm going about to make is that it kind of breaks down into three eras mm-hmm. and the era that followed them, albeit, you know, it was a good six years at least after this album, but they were still about, they were still a concern, a going concern and they were certainly, arguably this is the most celebrated you know, critically celebrated Screamo album mm-hmm. full stop. Um, the era that followed them did have commercial appeal. They had some really big commercial bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get to that. So whilst they were not getting courted and whilst the bands they were influencing in the immediate vicinity didn't really break through, around about just under a decade later, mm-hmm. this genre transitioned into something with a lot of like mainstream appeal, albeit in a, a very modified form. Mm-hmm. A very shit form, which is why you're wrong to say it's good, Mark. But You don't know who I'm talking about yet, so... <laughs> yeah, no, I think... Is, and are you not talking about, like, even more modern? Yeah, I'm talking about even more modern stuff, like, more as in the last five, six, seven years. Right. 
Well, we'll which is which is the third year, I would say. Well, yeah, oh well, oh. it certainly sounds like it. We'll, we'll debate <laughs> that. Um, I mean, just to give people a rundown that are aren't familiar with it, uh, we said scrams early on. That has become the kind of catch-all for the original batch, which we'll call phase one of of mm. Screamo, the sort of uh, the OG. Um, I mean, the origin stories of Screamo, is, is, as far as I can make out anyway, vary quite a bit. But a lot of people cite San Diego in the very early 90s. Um, yeah. A lot of hardcore kids there picking up on some of the metal riffs that were kicking about. But also that kind of like West Coast thing in America, going down into like Latin America, there's a huge love of stuff like the Smiths and the Cure. And I think like fashion played a big part in Screamo. This is like one of the things we spoke about during Botch and we've spoken about it in the context of Converge. You're playing with a lot of bands who are like long hair and black t-shirts and suddenly these kids were showing up that were not dressed like that. They had like kind of cute bobs and sensitive guy haircuts, tidy shirts or just a totally different take on the aesthetic. And yeah, I really think that like I said, that look was such a huge part of it and it's still in my head is one of the things that defined Screamo bands. I mean, they would sound like Earth Crisis, but they didn't come across like Earth Crisis and they weren't singing about the same things as Earth Crisis, thank fuck, because that <laughs> would be about how abortion is wrong. Yeah. Um, I think, do you know, I think it's really interesting. So that the Wikipedia entry on, on Screamo is actually the most accurate thing on the web for it because it's really hard to find any definitive quote-unquote definitive history online I tried really fucking hard and I think it's really interesting that they seem to be pinpointed to an exact year in San Diego in 1991 as being when it really became a thing and I always find that kind of thing a bit fascinating right because usually it's movements that exist and like kind of swirl around in certain eras but putting it to a specific place specific time specific venue is not really something that's done outside of punk you know what I mean? Mm, it seemed, the thing is though, it, even though it's credited as having maybe started there, it seemed to migrate to the East Coast. Absolutely, because a lot of the most influential bands are East Coast bands, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like some of the earliest purveyors that are associated with it are bands like Heroin and Antioch Arrow. Yeah, you Uh, I mean, you also had this coming on the back of the emergence of bands like Dead Guy and the Dazzling Killmen, who were sort of like noisecore. They, you know, they, they were kind of straddling their own part of this kind of alternative rock movement that had, we, we've talked about Helmet and all those kind of noisecore bands. There was there was a weird kind of no man's land there where some of these bands were sort of facing off against each other and in their corners, but not really that far away from each other in real terms. But they were associated with entirely different scenes. Um, apparently, there's quite a significance as well because uh, Tooth and Nail, the the Christian uh, label, started picking up on metalcore, mm-hmm. and that seemed to play quite a big part in you know exposing a lot of suburban kids, especially in American Midwest, to to a style of music that I guess was kind of off limits to them. Yeah, I mean, there's or, a, I mean, one thing that's probably worth discussing with we've never done a metalcore record, right? But when we talk about that, mm, feels like would uh, you not say the bled? No, I would say that's probably closer to being post-hardcore, but we discussed that on the episode. Go back and listen yeah. to it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not having that fight again. Yeah, go back and listen to it. But it's there's a, there's a really rich strand of Christian hardcore, like metalcore from that from that whole. I guess when this when the second wave of screamo was around, there's a really rich vein of that which still exists to this day. Mm-hmm. Some of which are convicted 
guys that tried to get their wife wife killed. By the <laughs> way, I, I don't know if we, it seems obvious we didn't mention this is clearly a portmanteau of scream and emo. Mm-hmm. Emo rock is a huge mm. part of this, the, the emo, emo movement. For sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. heroin sounds like Fugazi, but a bit more aggressive. Super early for Gazi, but that can eat up for Gazi. Sound quite aggressive, much more aggressive. Until Caro shared the same members as heroin, um, which is. But yeah, I mean, just listening to like the clean parts, there's like little bits of the tapping and the arpeggios and stuff like that that are so sort of mineral and uh, mm-hmm. American. Uh, what are they called again? Uh, Head charge? <laughs> no, they cunts for the house on uh, American football. American football. Ah, right, okay. American <laughs> head charge. <laughs> no, I know. I just wanted to give them a mention. Shout out to my boys. Um, no, I, I, you're right. And and the Deep Elm and Jade Tree labels and stuff. These bands were clearly like at, at that. And actually, I want to talk a bit about my experience with Screamo. And it was seeing them on bills with bands that didn't always sound very like them, mm-hmm. because there was seen as there was definitely a sense of. Uh, Solidarity between some of the kind of slightly heavier emo bands and the slightly lighter screamo bands, and they went together pretty regularly. They would tour together. There's a lot of mutual admiration for it. Um, I think it's also interesting to mention when it comes back that screamo, that lyrical change, that sort of substantive change in the subjects, it was part of the emo movement. Was obviously trying to get away from the machismo of the the 80s chest-beating hardcore and the circle pits and things like that. And emo took that with it, became a little bit more uh, introverted or a little bit more self-reflective, maybe a better phrase. Screamo has a lot of that, although it became quickly became a parody of itself in the sense that it was people yelling about getting dumped. Um, and so what initially seemed like a reaction to machismo uh, actually sort of metastasized a wee bit into something quite sort of incelly and I think that's you know we're speaking just not long after the Plymouth shootings which are just the latest example of like incel and men's rights and that that kind of aspect anti-feminism and weirdly screamo and emo have become quite associated with that like sensitive modern guys Mm -hmm. resenting women for making them feel what they feel and then actually ending up going, you know, full circle and ending up right back at the kind of machismo that they were initially trying to leave. Mm. And the whole time, this whole thing going under the radar and not being seen and called out as it should be. But that's that's a whole other conversation. Um, I feel like a lot of the bands in this sort of first era of Scream were probably not as... Not, not as guilty as that as, as the second. Totally agree. Um, yeah, it hasn't yet metastasized. Mm, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like, back then, it still has that sort of innocence, it still has that sense of progressiveness that of emo, you know, getting away from the chess beaters. The gigs were much more evenly spread between men and women. It wasn't such an intimidating environment. And obviously bands came through like at the drive-in that I'm sure we're going to mention shortly, who were very much, you know, outspoken on these things for Gazi as well, clearly writing and singing about it. And they were all kind of kindred spirits in that sense. Phase two happened around about the 2000s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I'm going to agree with Bert McCracken from the youth here, and I don't do that ever. But there's one thing I will agree with him on, and it's like I think he says uh, around about this time. He says I think the word screamo is just a marketing term. And 
I think that's probably true. I don't think this has very much in common. This is a, this is a teenager lease coming out of me, I suppose. I don't think the second wave of Screamo has all together that much in common with the original stuff. I think it is basically. I th- I, th- I think as a portmanteau, it works for both types of music. It does, yeah. So I was going to say mm. the types of music don't actually have that much in common to you know a half well trained ear. Your structures are completely different. Your uh, production quality is, mu- you know, so much different. It's much. It's just much more commercial and much more straightforward, I guess. Mm-hmm. It it basically takes the the it takes the, the emotional parts of emo, you know, the big the big uh, the big sort of bed in my soul, and then like you say, Chris, turn up to eleven, like you know, it metastasizes into like pure almost misogyny a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Combine it with metal a lot of the time too. The same, the same, the same kind of bands. I think that were influencing metalcore bands are also influencing a lot of these screamo bands. That's very true. Yeah, there's a huge crossover. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Because even you know when the Boston scene kicked off, the kind of metal scene in Boston, and even bands like Converge and stuff, their scene has been very influential. Or obviously not part of this scene, mm. but at times you know sonically there was a lot in common with them. Um, we mentioned Botch as well. Botch are one that are associated with it. Um, clearly, turn of the century as well. Like refused and at the drive-in, absolutely huge mm. uh, bands like like slightly further down the ladder. Locust with their kind of Gonzo thing that played a part because one thing these bands do is they chop and change direction and mm-hmm. tempos a lot. Uh, Drowning Man, people like that. I think the Midwest emo phase was maturing to a point that was slightly. Uh, it became closer to the indie, I think, the Midwest emo stuff, because then you got, then you started to get bright eyes and, mm-hmm. and cursive and stuff like and, that, and, which and, was and moving it, more in that direction. Aye, and it was getting toned down, mm-hmm. and, and there was a group of people that weren't satisfied with that, so they pushed away and formed this thing. But as you say, it became quite close to marketing in, in itself. I mean, it, Screamo at this point became associated with like Hot Topic. Absolutely, because think about it. Bands that start breaking through in the early 2000s, which is actually the same time this record comes out. So the same time as... The we're, we're talking about out. just as new metal is leaving, but yeah, there are still uh-huh. teenagers that want to listen to heavy yeah, music. Yeah, I've, I've got... So there's a really good resource, uh, a guy called Jim, De- Jim DeRogaitis. He did a guitar world feature in 2002. That sounds like the wrong... I don't know what the word looks like, but I'm going to guess <laughs> that nobody has that name. Jim, Jim D... <laughs> Jim D. Rogaitis. <laughs> Rogatus? Derogatus maybe? I'm really shit with names. Just fucking just press on, man. I'm shit with names. Anyway, um, one of the guys, so he interviewed a bunch of people for this guitar world feature and one of the the people he spoke to was uh, one of the guys for Poison the Well, Derek Miller, who Mm -hmm. are really not Mm -hmm. a screamo band or an emo band. But I can see the, I can can uh see the parallels. Um, and his his first words are everyone's want to put the nail in the coffin of new metal, mm. um, which is pretty much what this is like. And then the guitarist for the use is saying there's definitely a movement. Kids call it emolution. 
Oh wet, never popped wet, up in the show. Wet, mate. Wow. <laughs> um, he said, it's a new wave, it's a new setting on your amp, a new rhythm, a new dynamic inflection with your vocal. I'm like, so this guy was clearly not listening to fucking Orchid and Page 99. <laughs> that sounds like a fresh release, man. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, so, but this guy brings it back to Rites of Spring and Discord and saying these bands were influenced by that, but then bringing in lots of other stuff like Weezer, like the Get Up Kids. You know, a little bit more heavier stuff as well. And then you get bands like Thursday and The Used and Thrice. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Thursday, The Used, Taking Back Sunday to some extent. Even like Norma Jean made a, a big impact on people yeah. from this. The, the, Victory this Records, uh, I think, were massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, they were the one that actually introduced a lot of the, this stuff to me. I can't remember. I went to some music conference and ran into the Victory Records stall and <laughs> just met two very attractive American skater girls and they they just gave me a whole bunch of free DC, free CDs if I went and happened. did free work I, I, it was like a dream but like I got totally I did end up just working for free basically for them for the whole day just because I thought they were uh. hot but they also gave me a bunch of CDs and it was like fucking Silverstein Taking Back Sunday and yeah it was just an, like I just remember Victory Records were a huge part of that whole movement Drive Through Records as and well Drive Through yeah, you know, yeah. They, I mean they, they had a lot more pop punk don't get me wrong but Fincher on that label mm-hmm. so can can I throw something into the mix here and it's actually related to something I was watching I'm sure we're all aware of the Woodstock 99 documentary that's kicking oh, about Yeah, and clearly as you said like new metal there was something unsavoury there was something toxic that had become associated with it right at the turn of the century you know Limp Bizkit for all their like switch off your brain fun were also sort of the the tip of the iceberg of like this big well of misogyny and and nasty manly it was like jock metal jock metal yeah, yeah that was that was there mm-hmm. and i think as the new century arrived there was a, there was definitely a, a growing repulsion with it and there was a mm-hmm. sense of like people wanting to kick away from it so you had bands like linkin park trying to do a slightly more stylized cool emotional metal you know to sing about things that were more personal and depression and things like that um, rather than I want to break stuff, you know, and then you had metalcore happened as well. Metalcore, but then you also had this group of kids that were coming up who didn't want to be these luddites. They didn't want to wear backward caps and have chains and mesh vests and stuff. They wanted to wear t-shirts and jeans, but still play some pretty intense music. There was also the fact that the early screamo, I think, was associated with the DIY and underground movement. That was always what it was in, mm-hmm. in my mind at that stage. And so there was a credibility factor with it. If you were playing that, you were the real deal. You weren't this giant stadium rock new metal band. You were something svelte and sleek and credible and cool and hip. And it, it just it, it was a lot more palatable, I think. There was there was that kind of self-awareness that, that, that it created a lot of enthusiasm. And even at this stage, I think there was still a lot of ties to the DIY scene. Yes, there was some bands starting to break through. And yes, bands that were tangential to it, like At The Drive-In, were becoming very big. But, I mean, my experience of, like, the early, early, early 2000s, going to especially 13th Note in Glasgow, which was spoken about, which was for a long time, the hub of foreign underground bands arriving in the city was seeing bands like uh, Song of Zarathustra. Their show sums up to me what I think people wanted from Screamo because it, it made a big impact. I remember going to see this group. They were playing with, I think it might have been Stapleton or something like that. And Stapleton were a sort of, I don't know, Stapleton were kind of like very sort of like Jade Tree-ish, intricate, mm. mathy, you know, very, like a very cool band, but not particularly aggressive, very thin vocals and stuff like that. And it, 
it, it was someone like Stapleton, if not them. And Song of Zarathustra came on stage, kind of good looking young guys, very nice haircuts, you know, tight t-shirts, jeans. It was kind of like, what the fuck is this going to be? Absolutely no idea. And I remember being at the front of the stage because I just didn't expect anything. Hadn't heard them. I'd just gone on to see. And they're like counting one, two, three, four. And literally before the cymbal had stopped ringing, the singer was halfway up the back of the room absolutely thrashing about just like going for it like full-on screamo and yeah the songs broke into like little song bits and stuff but the impact of that seeing these guys who didn't look like crusties or who didn't look like metalheads but they were really fucking heavy and confrontational i think that's what a lot of people saw in screamo and wanted a bit of that they were like oh i can try and look hot i don't have to look like anti-social but I can play music that's still really intense. There's just something in the the package of the whole thing that I think was quite appealing to young mm, yeah. young males, especially. But what what's funny about that is then only three or four years later, and I was obviously a bit younger than you, came from the Highlands, and I went to see Taste of Chaos at the yeah, SEC. That would be the place, yeah. With like what eight thousand people mm. there, and in two thousand and five, I think the lineup was Funeral for a Friend, yep. The Used, mm. Kill Switch Engage. <laughs> Uh, story of the year and rise against maybe so you've got like there's definite screamo there with you know the modern screamo with the used and then funeral for a friend i would put them in that i'm not screamo but i definitely put them in like emo bracket yeah at the same time but then you've also got the metal core of kill switch engage as well but what was also what was interesting there was it had been like packaged and consumerized and made into a product for the 18 year old we didn't have hot topic but what did we have we just had you know our it was like we had flip yeah flip (laughs) yeah but what was also interesting was the gender mix so many of my pals who were girls fucking loved that shit Mm -hmm. yeah definitely. it opened it up a lot it really opened it up there was a sex appeal side to it as well i mean yeah we're, we're all young we're we kid ourselves on that we're not, but you know, there's a lot of hormones kicking about and there was something about the screamo and emo movements. I mean, remember the band Finch? Mm-hmm. Finch, I think, were like the commercial edge of screamo and that they would just a few times in their songs really deliberately sort of launch into something really throaty, but they also had these big ballady sort of singing choruses and mm-hmm. stuff. Was fucking like honestly, yeah. that was like neck. Bart McCracken was a bit of a sex symbol for the yeah. total, <laughs> disturbed goth, a, yeah, total wild card of a guy. Uh, and I, who else, even like, uh, I mean, I guess the guy from uh, Taking Back Sunday, they're a bit more emo, yeah, Adam Lazar, um, Ian Watkins. He was in the mix of that time The thing is I always associate Lost Prophets Much more with new metal I know they're British totally, absolutely, so they yeah, fit, but same man. That, you know, It's because that first album Shinobi was Dragon Ninja yeah, yeah. It's just like that's like somewhere between But they became the emo band They were, too they kept, they were friend, genuinely Yeah because yeah, they were like Funeral for a Friend meets 30 Things to Mars like that's, They were playing with yeah, him yeah. That kind of shit in America yeah. you know. They had a fair bit They were like Funeral for a Friend Meets Linkin Park or Aye, like Yeah, yeah pretty much I um, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to mention About that kind of era Is that Out of all the bands That existed Around about this time There's very few of them Which I would actually say Would have listened Like I said To the original bunch of records One of the guys That I absolutely know For a fact did And took influence from it Was Jeff Rickley From the band Thursday Mm-hmm Watch 
Panthers they're a really interesting band in a lot of ways they're not really for me but they've done a lot of really cool things throughout their career including break up a couple of times <laughs> um, there's a couple of Thursday records that I really like yeah they did they did a split with Envy when Envy became when Envy had become like a post-rock band mm-hmm. uh, they, they did a lot of really interesting things they were always a, kind of moved around that movement and they did have their moments but his voice and they had keys and they were really abrasive sometimes as well almost to the point of being Screamo like original Screamo it's 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 no wonder they get signed to a major label then dropped after two albums because they're just people thought oh they've got they've got bangers they, they can write bangers but then they've just would not write bangers yeah you know and thrice as well another one who I think are personally one of my favourite bands. They started off as like a sort of kind of techie metally band. Um, started doing this emo post hardcore stuff, and then I've just kind of went off in a kind of mathy alt rock tangent ever since the late two thousands. And they're no longer part, like part of that conversation anymore. But they they kind of cut their teeth as two of me bands like Funeral for a Friend and uh, I, I don't know who were huge in America um, at the time. They were like Finch and they used like kind mm-hmm. of shit. Um, and yeah. they're still going now and they're, they're, I think they're new they've got a new song out which is like really synth heavy and stuff but they're, they're still going and, and doing really interesting shit so I mean I guess what that brings us to is phase 3 the 2010s and the big bucks um, and and at this point it really did change because this is when this like there was a new batch of smaller bands appearing where you got like Lydia Spoot has become teeth mm. Tushi Amore mm. things like the releasing stuff on Death Wish which had that credibility factor but then the production was getting slicker the hints of like the older DIY stuff that was still sort of present in that second wave of, of, of screamo bands was really starting to go as things like autotune even started to arrive you know for the big notes they wanted the big notes to be dead commercial they were pushing for radio play they were pushing for things to be as syncable as possible as this music could be I mean, this even ended up leading to things like Attack, Attack and stuff like that. You know, that grew out of this weird third movement. I I feel like the third movement kind of split in two. It does, yeah, absolutely. There were the folk-like Defeater and Pianos Become the Teeth that are like, go back down the hardcore route. Do the spoken do. wordy vocal thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that, and don't really sing at all. And then there's really. then there's the bands that I mean I literally never heard of, but they've got fucking millions of plays. The Devil Witch Prada and mm, Under Oath. And yeah, exactly. That, that went down, just grew their MySpace to maximum capacity. <laughs> Yeah, Tushy and Mori are one of my favourite bands of recent years, you know. Um, they've, they've been a really interesting journey. Um, Jeremy's a lovely, lovely guy as well. 
fucking great vocalist, but he's only got one note. You know, he's one. Of, he's like, he's a talky kind. He's a talky sort of screamy guy. That's the only thing he does, and he knows that. And when I interviewed him on my old podcast, he said that this is all I do. Like, I can't really sing. This is just this is just what I do. But I fucking love doing it. Um, and they've they're now an epitaph and sore pianos become the teeth, and they've kind of made their way. But they're, I think that's probably their ceiling. They're never going to go to a major label mm-hmm. because they just don't have any commercial appeal in that in that sense. Well, I mean, Devil Wears Prada are what, multi platinum. Yeah, but they're. I would. There's no. They don't sound anything like a band like La Dispute or or. Um, they sound more metalcore yeah they're way more metalcore for sure man I mean um, it's a genre that metamorphosed but didn't die I mean 2018 remember Noisy and Vice quite famously called it the summer of Screamo yeah Dan Ozzy's one of my favourite writers not only just because he did Tranny with Laura Jane Grace but he was the only person at Vice and who did Noisy and was like the proper only proper punk guy for a long time mm-hmm. he's always been one of my favourite writers does, he does a really good podcast with another good writer called David Anthony uh, I think it's got some I can't remember the name of it something about you're not getting in it's about Basically being the guest list, but they just talk shit about music, um, and they're both fucking great writers. And he's he's super sound. And that that series of a summer of screamo, yeah, I think he just started off just by talking about the older stuff, and people just kept sending them emails. Check out this band. Check out this band. Check out this band. And that led to me coming across things like Headwind City, which were obviously the locust and yeah yeah yes. Had Loma Prieti, who are great. Um, Narrows, I guess, would be part of that scene too. And yeah, Tushimori, obviously. The Saddest Landscape, pretty good. Birds and Row, who are great too. Yeah, really yeah, good. Birds and Row are fucking brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. Their album, You, Me, and the Violence, is, is superb. Um, Portrayal of Guilt, who, who released an album last year and are probably more black metal now, but really did start off as like a screamo band. Um, yeah, and that that that's something that happened was like the merging of black metal and screamo, and you know bands like you know Death Heaven, Heaven mm-hmm. and that whole uh, yeah vibe. I mean, I think given the fact that the early roots of it are so subversive, the fact that it's become so mainstream and so sanitized and overproduced in some quarters mm-hmm. makes it ring all the more hollow. You know, stuff like pop punk always had pop punk it always mm. had a melodic accessibility to it but screamo had the pretense of being difficult mm. and off-putting and your parents are like oh what's this noise turn that off and to try and turn that into mainstream commerce seems so much more contrived and mm. so much more devoid of real meaning in the end it's, yeah. it's a bigger contrast you know so that's why i think the screamo now seems so laughably irrelevant to my life just generally I would say that the bands like Tushimori and the bands like La Dispute and Pianos Become a Teeth even though they've got <laughs> one vocal <laughs> that's all they do I would say they send a lot closer to like the quieter moments in Circle Takes a Square or Page 99 than, than they do to something like The Devil Wears Prada or I guess even fucking I don't know Attack Attack like you said these bands who are just Black Veil Brides Black Veil Brides asking Alexandria Escape the Fate yeah. that kind of shit you know brutality will prevail they're kind of more hardcore I guess but some of these some of these guys still have Vimo fringes as well yeah absolutely So before we go into the album itself, I just want to like, it, it's not a scientific observation, but just my personal instincts on Screamo. In some ways, it was certainly initially cool to hear dynamism 
and a, a, a musical force, I think, in the context of emo. Mm-hmm. That was nice to hear emo get a little bit more hardcore. Ed- edgy and less whiny. Mm-hmm. And equally, it was nice to see hardcore get a little bit less butch and a little bit more, yeah. you know, uh, thoughtful for a while at least. Um, it was definitely exciting for a bit, um, but I have to say that very quickly what seemed apparent were a lot of the imitators that came out, because there were a fucking lot of sl- screamo bands that had the scene, was that there was very little melody and very little hook. It, it, when they ran out of ideas in a song, they would just scream. And as such, it made it very easy to write to that formula. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a... Screamo had this giant fucking get-out clause, this giant lever that you pulled anytime mm-hmm. you ran out of ideas that was just scream. fucking scream. Yeah. And it was really cheap. And you would go and see these bands and just be these howling fucking waif-like guys with like cute haircuts. It's just like, fuck me, man, you're doing that again. And it did get really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they could play a lot. It's quite technical, but they couldn't write a fucking tune. Mm-hmm. It was like screamo landfill. And it was so forgettable. And I'm sure there were bands within that that probably deserved more attention than they got. But people were so jaded to constantly getting this fucking lowest common denominator, like tappy, 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 scream, 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 mm-hmm. tappy, tappy, tappy. And it just, it, it did form, form a bit of a wave like yeah. an indistinguishable fucking wave of stuff that I think probably turned a lot of people off. Um, now, Circle Takes a Square always stood out to me as one of the bands that were better than average, always, like from the early days. What we've not mentioned is that Screamo happened in conjunction with the internet. Mm-hmm. The way I found Screamo was through file sharing sites. Yeah, Soulseek was, uh, was Soul Seek, um Epitonic was the one for me where they used to sort of lead you to other bands of similar likes. Mm-hmm. And the, the bands themselves could submit tracks and put a wee description and you would get into all kinds of stuff from that. Um, it was also just when Last FM had started, when yeah. I started getting mm-hmm. into this. Yeah, and so these bands really latched onto that and that created a scene. And so the bands that were getting linked to each other became part of a kind of grouping of bands that formed a kind of collective unit. And I just, yeah, and so I guess to me it's not a genre that's had a lot of longevity. Um, I think a bit like math rock, it was momentarily uh, impressive. I think you could go and see it sometimes and it totally hit the money with the energy. But then the takeaway was music that wasn't always, like you didn't really want to go back to it. So I, this this was a difficult week of listening, I'll be honest. As much as, like as I say, cerebrally can appreciate it, fucking not a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, for me, in a sense, it has quite a lot in common with something like Grindcore. You know, it's these guys can clearly play, or these guys and, and girls can clearly play, but it's not something I'm going to be listening to on the reg because it's it's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's quite an interesting gateway, and it was quite an interesting output for my aggression at that point. Or you know, you'd get I'd, I remember but listening that's to this record aggression, and that's yeah, the thing. yeah, yeah, exactly. It sounds f- infantile. Yeah, I mean, it was 15 years ago when I first heard it and I was like, oh yeah, I'm into that a bit. And then you give it six months and then you move on. You should. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a music that I feel you grow out of because its expression is so basic. It's so just like, and you're like, okay, but no, can we can we break that down a bit? No. This record, for instance, is a lot more, cer- well, cerebral, but also more interesting than, say, a lot, like a lot of the fucking second phase metal yeah, core hence why this like is this yeah. stands quite markedly out from the pack I was going to say I think when I think about Screamo there's only really five bands that I think about because the rest of it is all just much of a muchness much of a muchness um, so Orchid Chaos Is Me is a great album Orchid Chaos Is Me 
I really like Page 99, document number 8, brilliant, document number 5 is also great, City of Caterpillar, also really good. Um, Circle Takes a Square, obviously, and Envy, you know, the first Envy albums, mm-hmm. fuck, or the second Envy album, sorry, all the print, all the footprints you've ever left and the feet expecting ahead. Yeah, I saw them do that nice and sleazy. Fantastic album. You know, the band that I actually got into and the record that I really got into that this reminded me of, and I know it, it maybe came a couple of years after, but it was Fear Before the March of Flames. Yeah, they were cool. They were I really cool, liked them, and uh, yeah, their record, "The Always Open Mouth," I really caught on to because it had, it just maybe didn't quite have the chaos. I had bits to hang on to, and it was maybe a bit more alt rocky and a bit more metally, just in terms of its structure, but in terms of its aesthetic and its like its sonics, it was very similar to this, but a lot more forgiving. So, before we talk about this album, should we talk about decompositions? Mm. Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that it. It's just like so after the fact. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they spent so long just working on it. I read an interview with him saying when he was getting ready, when they were getting ready, he was getting ready to the to do the release of the tenth anniversary vinyl of As It Is Undo. So that would been twenty fourteen. He was talking about how they took so long to do it because they just didn't want to rush it along. I think as an album, it sounds like it sounds like they've completed their mission. One of the things I really like about Azure Sunday is that it's got a lot of ambition, but they're not quite good enough to pull it off. Whereas Decompositions is, now they can pull it off, but the ambition is maybe not as energetic as it used to be. You know, they've- Yeah, they've definitely slowed down and they're doing sort of maybe like some post-metally stuff and mm-hmm. some post-rock stuff. Um, but they've also, they've kind of lost the edge. And they're, yeah, you're right, they're not playing at the edge of their ability anymore. Or beyond their ability at some points yeah. um, And it, it's not I actually, I, I quite enjoyed having that record On, maybe in the background But I mean it, it's, it's It doesn't seem like a vital record In any way, mm. it's just an album that's like Eight years after this band were Important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean there's a couple of good songs on it And by the narrow gates is really good Better production, better sounding guitars Better playing, nicer reverbs. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the wave of our branching path sounds like something they try to do on as the roots undo, but it's got a much tighter structure. Feels a lot more considered. With the quartet by the time you did. Yeah, and I had to be had a better drummer, a different drummer who was clearly better. Yeah. But I mean 
back then they were all wee guys, you know. So well, I like one that. of them was a wee girl. They're all wee folk. <laughs> There's a really cool triple vocal part um, with a sludgy outro and signifiers, which uh, prefaced by signifiers, which is dead good. And there's a really bit of nice creepy synth and a real heft towards the end of Arrowhead's epilogue as well. Um, but it is not as vital, as Dave says, as, as the Roots do. Just before we go in, I just, like, as I was talking about Last FM, I went on to Last FM mm-hmm. for a circle, uh, takes the square. And maybe my favourite one is, this is just bring me the horizon for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's what that, we could have just said that instead of talking <laughs> for 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Fuck yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Don't, you want to retake? <laughs> Uh, Mark, do you want to take us through the album itself? So I want to start this off by saying I think this is actually as true an emo record as any other emo record ever made. No, it's not. In terms of uh, the emotional <laughs> aspect. The emotional aspect of it, like it relies a lot on emotion without being sincere, which a lot of early emo did as well. And I think it's a great album because it feels dead raw and passionate and it's just everything I like about punk rock, even though it's not a punk rock album. Well, they claim it is. We claim, we both know that we both know talking shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we also make a mention that it was Drew Speciale that did the artwork for it? And the yeah. artwork's amazing. Yeah, the really beautiful sort of lilac and gold slash brass hand drawn thing on the front. It's fucking gorgeous. Really, a kind of intricate and organic line quality to it that. It makes it stand out from a lot of emo records mm. of the time, I yeah, guess. Generic, it, it doesn't look like, metal in any way. Emo records with their understated small font. Although it does kind of look like it could be like... And also the, the title sounds like it could be a Neurosis record. It does, actually. Yeah. It's true. I think it's also just looking at that cover, you really understand that it's a labour of love because that artwork is a labour of love. It's very intricate. Mm. It, there's a lot of time been spent on it and I think as a result the the records cover okay it's a bit cult but it's quite iconic mm-hmm. within that it's, it really deserves a mention can we also point out as well before we wade into the tracks that as well as the, the, the names we've checked like Page 99 and Orchid and stuff like that this is a band that cited Godspeed You Black Emperor yeah. Built to Spill and Modest Mouse as big, big influences in this and album and with a couple of them as well I yeah think. which is which is really unusual uh, so That'll maybe explain some of what we're about to describe because you're probably expecting us to say, if you've not heard this, you're probably expecting something quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a landmark release simply because it takes more risks than a lot of what a lot of other screamo oh, bands it, it were absolutely does. doing. And yep. like Dave said, sometimes they're playing t- like beyond their abilities, like beyond what they can physically play. And that limitation is great, I think. You know, the fact they're trying to push past that, I think, is. They're not. Fucking yeah, cool. they're like, doing. A lot of virtuoso stuff without being virtuosos. Um, they're yeah, they're doing stuff that maybe Converge could easily pull off, mm-hmm. but they can't. But they still fucking do it anyway, mm. which is maybe what makes it a bit punk rock. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's got an intro which has got a kind of whistling lead motif, which kind of records throughout the album. Straight away, once you've listened to the record and go back to listen to it again, you're kind of realising these guys are thinking about it in a slightly different way. 
to think about how to create an album as opposed to just a whole bunch of songs jammed together like mm-hmm. Orchid and don't get me wrong I fucking love Chaos is Made by Orchid but it doesn't feel like a cohesive work of art and like you said the artwork underlines that fact. it has a proggy quality to it it has a concept even though there's no explicit concept it has a, a sense of cohesion it makes me wonder about Savannah Georgia itself right because Baroness doing that kind of thing I Hate God all the all this sort of swampy sludgy stuff going on down there you know these bands that actually take music as a concept as opposed to just a bunch of tunes you want to rattle out. Probably just a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> it kicks off proper with the same shade as concrete. Um, so I was 18 when I first heard this album. Uh, it was not long after it came out because I was uh, a moderator. I think I've spoken about this before. I was a, I was an admin, sorry, on the funeral for a friend forum back in, oh, <laughs> back yes. in the day. Those were the days. And uh, yeah, this, was, this is when they first came out as a band um, uh, before, the, before that forum got completely nuked. And there was a lot of people on that forum that were really into this kind of music, like this kind of screamo. And were forever lecturing every cunt for going, oh, uh, I really don't like the second funeral for Vendy because it doesn't really sound as hardcore as the first one. By the way, listen to fucking Ampere. <laughs> Listen to Orchid and like, hmm, okay, mate. Um, so when I first heard this, it totally blew my mind because I hadn't heard anything like it before in my life ever. I hadn't even seen it live, mm-hmm. you know. And it's really just discordant. It's kind of great. And now I now realise now that it's actually quite grindcorey in a lot of ways. The way it starts off and just is quite furious, even though even though the time signature is a bit weird, they're also a bit all over the place at the same time, which I think is kind of endearing. And it doesn't it doesn't always feel like they're quite playing together at the same time, um, but it works because you always get to the end at the same time. So it's fine. Um, it feels it's also got that really hardcore bit. You know, it's like a it's like a tremolo picking riff, which feels a bit hardcore yeah. too. And then it's got the first melodic section, and that kind of really kind of clues you in as to how this album's going to go. <laughs> Right, they're going to do a, he- a heavy, hard, fast part, and they're going to do a melodic section, and that's just going to be the structure. Where do these fall in, in, in the songs and the record? Does anybody's fucking guess? But that's the kind of the two tricks that they really have. Um, there's some vocal moments in this that don't sit too well with me. I think there's like a really forced vibrato in it mm-hmm. that. Reminds me of, I mean, it sort of lies somewhere between Connor Roberst and Cedric Bixler, and it just it, it it feels hammy, like it feels like a bit contrived, and that didn't used to bother me, but it bothers me now. You know, mm. when I first listened to them, it wasn't that big a deal because I quite liked Bright Eyes, and I certainly liked uh, Disparacidos. Um, mm. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't age well. Um, I also think a couple of times they. They do that thing where they drop down to spanky guitar, you know, like clean, like chicka chicka chicka. Yeah, yeah. And it just sounds weak. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be a the real pr- gimmick, but it's yeah. just a bit. It just loses its power now. Yeah, I hated it when people did it live as well. Do you know? Really I was, I was thinking. I was driving through Shawlands, listening to it quite loud, and it was hot, so I had the window down. I wasn't mm-hmm. like showing off that I was listening to loud music. Mm-hmm. But like I'm not I'm not genuinely I'm not generally <laughs> Who's that guy? <laughs> I'm not generally embarrassed by what I listen to and I don't give a fuck really. But I don't I don't listen to it too loud. Oh but God, given some of the things you listen to. Yeah, exactly. But you know, but there was a point where I got to the traffic lights and I had this quite loud and I was like, 
I might turn this down because <laughs> I think they might think I'm 14 just because yeah. the vocals are like no, no I'm like, yeah. oh no, I'm I, I, I'm not into this anymore. <laughs> um, at its better moments, I think this song sort of summoned my memories of early Rolla Tomasi. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot to be said for for this band's influence on them. The du- the dual vocal attack and having a female vocal just so up front at the time was completely unheard of in the genre. Right, there was no other female singers, and having two vocals. Is that true? So I can't. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, maybe, maybe high. I would. I'll. I'll grant you high profile. But I mean, I saw quite a few. Yeah, I mean, female singers certainly on the European underground. There were quite a few. The bands that you that you would call influential in this scene are none of them have females in them at all. And the dual vocal thing was only done by a couple of bands, but not. Too, but it took off though with like Blood Brothers and all yeah, that. It started like, to be a thing after yeah. this for sure. But it was a kind of unusual at the time. And again, for me, that was a nice little oh, fuck. Like I've never really heard it done like that before. Female for a friend had dual vocalists, but it wasn't like this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the middle bit is kind of where it goes down to the really quiet bit when they're not doing the chicka chicka guitar bit. You know, with a weird which is like. You kind of sort out that, that weakness in the second album by just basically recording everything better mm-hmm. <laughs> and using better guitar. But the thing is, only stuff. having one guitar as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's hard to fill it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that later, actually, at one particular mm-hmm. part. But. Yeah, but the, the, the middle bit when they go to Wade in the Water is quite nice, and I like the way that builds up into almost a thrash metal climax. Wade in the water, child. It's a pretty cool song. It's it's definitely miles ahead of their first EP, which is I don't want to say formulaic, but it doesn't have anywhere near the same ambition as this or even quality of playing. And yeah, and then moves on to Crowquill, which is like a more condensed version of the last song. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's got this song quite early on. I think it's about forty seconds. Just for about ten seconds, drops into something that sounds a bit like Slint. <laughs> But it, when it comes back it's quite blasty I mean th- as you said It's not blast beat because they're not quite good enough mm. But it, it's it's doing a sort of A nod to blast beat The song sort of shambles about a wee bit Like it does that thing where it jumps from idea to idea to idea And mm. that's okay, it's cool when you're I don't know, it's, it's cool at the time But it just again, like it's a, it, it affects the longevity Yeah, um, I, I think I, I do fundamentally agree with that The, the thing that I really I like about the song was a call on response vocal um, which the Blood Brothers obviously did quite a lot of mm. as, a, as an art, as an artist, as a couple of artists, I suppose. It, it does kind of shamble about you, right? It, it feel, I, I know the idea of it was to feel like it falls apart in the middle, but it actually it really does fall apart in the middle before coming back in um, with one riff and then off kilter. I think does Craig call it a gravity blast? It's not like a real blast, but it's close to um, the Death Heaven blast. But he calls it because it's not quite a proper blast. Yeah, and it's a nice little doomy bit at the end, which 
is quite brief and does speak to the, the sludge of this desert savannah. Can I just check a gravity blast? I take it is because it's because of the way blast beats are played, where you're kind of like balancing it and leaning on it to get that propulsion down. Gravity blasts are where the drummer can't quite do that, so they're sort of relying on the weight of the stick to take it down. So mm-hmm. inherently, the speed of the blast is is limited yeah, by mm-hmm. that fact, right? Absolutely, just, yeah. There you go, public service announcement. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Uh, and A Nervous Light of Sunday was was actually the song that really stuck out to me when I first heard the album way back when I was a wee guy, um, just because of the riffs are really good. Some really nice big chunky and discordant parts in it, which, yeah, which I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, I think it was about one minute ten. It's got it goes into this quite gallopy bit. Yeah, uh-huh. it's, it's one of the stronger moments in the record. Although some of the vocal dropouts in this, I don't know why, because they're an American band, but the accent just made me cringe <laughs> fucking really hard. Yeah, see that see that bit from one minute ten to one minute thirty-four. He's just doing every single kind of drum fill we can think of, <laughs> one after the other. Good for him. It, it works, man. It works. Um, and again, they do like I said at the start. They do the whole loud, quiet, loud thing, just chucking it in wherever. <laughs> It seems as though there's no rhyme or reason. It's just, oh, should we maybe just like calm down the mentalness for a second and do something quiet? Are you okay? Instead of maybe doing something a little bit more slower, <laughs> maybe. Um, more slower, my favourite. More slower. Um, and there's a quiet bit towards the end which has a harmonised vocal, which is pretty cool. They don't, they don't really do that. They'll do it a lot on the next album. That might have just been accidental. <laughs> <laughs> they were going for the same note. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's also layered. That vocal at the end is like quite layered as well, which is pretty cool. And then it's interview at the ruins. Interview at the ruins. Piano intro. It's yeah. a, a nice wee pacer. I think certainly coming off the back of the last tune, where I was getting a bit fatigued. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's good. It's actually. I think it's my favourite track, um, just because it slows it down a bit and it oh, just gives you a bit of space. But it's also got that kind of. I think by the end of it, it builds. It kind of reminded me of Hope's Fall. Remember that band? Yeah. Um, and how they I, they kind of build a few things and yeah no it really worked for me actually and and maybe even like slower poison the well stuff as well yeah it's quite it's quite um when you take your foot off the gas gas and let things breathe it's it feels really sinister Um, which is cool, and they do a lot of atmospherics in it as well in places when it's quieter, which is 
which is I think this song really works because it has that almost metal feel to it in terms of the key and or the sort of chord choices and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's it's at this point in the album where the songs get a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, they all start kicking into like six minutes, even and more. Um, as I mentioned earlier on about the fact that they were a trio at this point, there's something about this tune in particular that kind of occurs to me as a musician and having gone to see these kind of bands as well, where they don't translate very well live. There's a really key guitar part in this where the guitar's doing one thing and then there's a little guitar refrain playing over it. And I'm thinking, okay, so when they played live, did they do the refrain, in which case all the guts of the song would disappear? Or did they do the gutsy bit, in which case the hook of mm-hmm. the refrain disappears? Because they did spend a wee while as a trio, and I, I can't imagine, <clears throat> until they got the fourth member, that this would this song would really have worked live. Because also, the piano stuff, I'm guessing they weren't touring with the stage piano. So... I feel as much as this is a strong point in the album, this probably didn't really work in, mm-hmm. in the live set for a long time until the band had that bigger lineup or were able to tour on a slightly bigger budget, if that was a thing. Um, I mean, I do think there's some interesting vocals on it. Uh, I think about four and a half minutes into it, there's like a kind of melodic sort of gang sung refrain mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it really reminded me a bit of the bands like Modest Mouse and also Pinback some of those lighter influences and much more intricate and interesting indie post-hardcore bands. So it's definitely a, a decent bit of music, but yeah, I'm just not convinced uh, how about whether or not they would be able to pull this song off in a way that would work live. I think yeah. you may actually be quite disappointed if this was your favourite track in the album mm-hmm. and you saw them trying to do it as a trio, you'd be like, mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's a fair point. Um, it follows up with non-objective Portrait of Karma. So I think this is the best one on it. It's got a really big post-rock feel, this song, so I'm, well, not, I'm not surprised by that. I'm a massive Godspeed, you Black <laughs> yeah. Emperor fan, and for about the first, was it, three minutes, 40 seconds, this sounds like a Godspeed, you Black Emperor track, yeah. uh, with all the drones and those kind of weird stringy things. Um, I, I think that three and a half minutes, at least, is, is the best passage on the album, even though it sounds very little like the rest of the album. They actually do that stuff pretty well. Um, uh, the screamo introduction, I think when the vocals la- land on this, it's actually... Also, the best example of that on the album because it, it doesn't sound forced or contrived or over egged. And finally, I'll sleep. And I'll sleep through the night. It's really well judged and it fits well, even coming out of that post rock thing. They did a good job of it. Um, I, I just think it, as a song it fits together quite nicely it doesn't feel hurried uh, it contrasts well but it, it does f- there's a sense of it having been workshopped really well mm-hmm. I, I was I was impressed with that song actually I hadn't heard it before despite having some tracks by them and it was it was good I like the shimmery sort of delay reverb effect I've got in that in that intro I, I guess the first movement of the song shall we say um, and see when it does give way to the total chaos the interplay of the vocals works really well for me and I think that is the best on the record of them doing that for, for absolute sure it does have a really weird qu- like sort of choir bit at the end just for like 20 seconds which is just utterly bizarre <laughs> Step back, 
only going to release two albums in your career then. Yeah. Might as well get the choir in. And I've got Kill the Switch after this, which kind of feels as though it should have been the last song. I would agree with that because I totally tuned out this album by the last song. What happened was around about the point in this song, I was like really struggling to tune back in mm-hmm. and focus on it every single time. Um, it does have some decent points. I mean, there's a cool dropout at a minute 10 in this mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy takes a lead or, or, or at least the equivalent of the lead a lot. There's a fucking disgusting use of phaser pedal at 3 minutes 23 yeah. seconds that is really, really awful. <laughs> um, but I think just Kill the Switch doesn't know when to stop mm-hmm. as a track. It just doesn't know when to fucking quit. And then because of that, the final track's a write-off for me because I'm just like, I am totally battered. Yeah, so it. I've kind of written, uh, this is the band basically going full tilt and it's actually quite hard to take in. There's like a whirlwind of different hardcore and noise rock shit happening all at once there's just a riff and a different riff and a different riff and a different riff and it's dead it's, it's it cuts about too much if, mm-hmm. you, if you know what I mean yeah it's, it's so many ideas mm-hmm. yeah, throwing, um, it, throwing it all at the wall it's even got a fucking wood block in it at 3 minutes 34 which is just completely bizarre uh, and I've, I've, I've written here I enjoy the build up after that part but the song's just exhausting and it must have been fucking exhausting it must be exhausting to play live as well mm, yeah because it's like 9.5 minutes long it's, uh, some things like about it it's, it's got a really nice push and pull I think the guitar work goes in a lot of different interesting directions if they'd have just like maybe grabbed a few bits and hung on to mm. that yeah well that's the thing though with screamo bands they frequently stumbled across pretty good riffs or even grooves and then they just Immediately dispensed with them They mm. didn't know how to like oh, Not that they didn't know They just didn't want to But I get it It just doesn't match with my sensibilities I'm also very aware of right now How there's probably some real super fans Screaming at this podcast <laughs> Like we're in a territory Where we're dissing Arguably the most celebrated album of the genre And we're sort of we're not dissing it out, outright But we are giving it We're a, finding fault We're finding fault mm. And I am very aware that people are probably A little <laughs> bit unhappy with uh, and then as a creator, co- creator to coffin after that, which is actually it's actually a pretty good song. It's just a shame it sits where it sits. Mm-hmm. Um, it reprises the motif from the start of the album uh, throughout on it, guitar. It doesn't get a fair. Uh, it really chance because of what yeah. it's coming after mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's, it feels even more climactic than Kill the Switch and it, uh, I understand why they made us end the last song because it feels as though it should be the last song as well but Kill the Switch probably should have been elsewhere or shorter or more succinct or two tracks or yeah, something, something like that yeah. um, the main riff in this song is really hypnotic I really like the flow of it when they bring in the heavy guitars that kind of they come in gradually as opposed to all at once, which is like a really interesting thing that they haven't done yet on the album. Um, they pull it back around two minutes, uh, sorry, around three minutes forty, and you do another 
another little bit of nice vocal interplay um, and then it's just a really big outro which is also again um, by this point in the album like you said Chris you're pretty exhausted anyway mm-hmm. so to have another song which is the last song's 9 minutes this one's 10 oh yeah okay yeah it's maybe not got as many moving parts it's still a bit of a slog I think because that big riff at the end and bringing that big riff back to the melody that starts the album is super fucking clever and it just sounds heavy as balls but the song is just way too long It's a, it's a shame because just what's come before it detracts from it, which is a bit of a shame. You know, it's fun. I mean, this is the most boomerish take on this album going because imagine if we could all go back to our 20 year old selves and review this album. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Think absolutely. about how different our take Like, fucking this awesome bit. And then he does <laughs> this bit. And he just keeps doing different bits. And he's so angry. And it goes, <laughs> I mean, it, it is incredible how uh, every five years we uh, reviewed this album, how different our perspective <laughs> on it would get. Yeah. We're just jaded and old. Mm. And we don't, we don't get it anymore, maybe. But I just don't think this kind of stuff has translated as well. Um, I, I mean, we've done albums way older than this that still seem a lot more vibrant and and relevant. Um, it's not really working for me. I mean, when you compare it age wise to the likes of Jane Doe, mm-hmm. it doesn't even come close. You know, and in, in terms of still like re listenability, not not even the same fucking ballpark. That said, it's maybe just a slightly more perishable genre than that, and it was a very good example of that at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that. It should almost certainly go in, in sense of people who aren't familiar with the genre, if you want to have some grasp of the history of the genre, this is a very, very seismically important record in that um, I am just speaking on a personal level, I'm not a huge fan of it now, but historical me is insisting that it goes in, pragmatic me is insisting that it goes in, so yeah, I think it should go in, but I don't want to hear it for a long time <laughs> yeah i'm happy for for it to go in and i understand it and i kind of get it it's like when we listen to a hardcore record it doesn't have the things that i grab onto but i appreciate it and i kind of admire it but it also makes me want to go and listen to poison well or Glassjaw or, or fear before the march of flames or because Enya. they do or Enya, yeah Enya. Mm-hmm. just because they do but they don't do this better but they do what they this do. more like what mm. I like, but that's fine. Yeah, but I, st- I, I, I totally get this record. I think this particular era in this genre is not as impactful as the one that followed, which is still reverberating to this very day. Arguably, there's maybe not as many interesting records out the second wave than there is in the first one. I wish that now that I reflect upon this, having done screamo and listened to all of it <laughs> for the past week, I wish this band had made this record two, three, maybe even four years later. Either that or earlier. That's or they or they could have just done another record sooner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think I think if they if they spent more time becoming better musicians and thinking about being better songwriters, I think they could have done. Because like, they, what would have happened if they did a, another record in two thousand six? You know, I think the like, thing is though, because as you say, the, the genre ex- it didn't explode, but the genre got much bigger, right? It got much more high profile. The thing is, so many people 
have so much love for this album because it feels more personal. It felt more like um, esoteric. It feels more like a little small project between your pals. Yeah, you know? more like esoteric knowledge. Yeah. More like like more more kind of like wow, we have this beautiful thing that we found from from the states and it. Yeah, and if you were there, it burned brightly, but it burned quicker. Yeah, you know? and it just it and just felt more intimate, and you know, and that is possibly why it's easier to hold it very close and almost be quite protective about it, and probably why people are currently screaming at the podcast about what fucking idiots we are. Yeah, um, but it, you know, this was a personal period for this. This is you know, people probably feel about this the way I felt about some of the really fucking excellent early to mid nineties alternative stuff where it felt yeah, very special. And how like, I felt about. Hybrid theory. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I whenever I thought about this kind of style of music, and anybody ever spoke about that, like in this band, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, man, I fucking love that record." But I, I wouldn't listen to it very regularly. Mm. Having to let a little bit of that go to let to do this podcast, I actually feel kind of better for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, which is interesting because I, I did I, I do still like this album a lot. I'm not I, I don't listen to it regularly. I'm not going to listen to it regularly going forward. Um, I listen to it more than any other contemporaries. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's oh. like a it's like a jumper that you had at the time. Mm. You know, you probably overwore it, like worn through, and now it look it kind of maybe looks shit and it's out of fashion. But you know how lovely that jumper was to wear for that year and a half. <laughs> yeah, and You're you remember analogies, man. You remember <laughs> winching somebody really nice to that in that jumper. You remember somebody borrowed it, and you just have a lot of good memories with that jumper. Yeah, but it's fucked now, and you shouldn't wear it. But it's still in your drive. I'm kind of more in the mindset of like, right, we might put a few emo kids and noses out a joint, but they're fucking emo kids. What the fuck are they going to do? They're going to fucking write about us in your diary. Who gives a shit? If they're still emo kids now, there's definitely a problem. Oh, yeah, exactly. They've probably got emo kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, Nexus. Nexus. A complicated series of connections between different things. Yeah. Cool. Marcus, Um, it's your turn. Okay, so Circle Takes a Square. They released both of their albums on the record label Robotic Empire which is owned by the guitarist of Page 99, a guy called Mike Taylor. Uh, in the 2010s, specifically 2014, 2015 and 2016, they released uh, three tribute albums to Nirvana, um, one for each of their albums. Um, and on each of the records, they contained a bunch of covers by different bands. So you had like bands like Boris and Caven and Torch and Toshio Mori and stuff like that. A lot of really cool bands like doing various versions of... Caven did Territorial Piston? Yeah, they did. Uh-huh, that's right. Um, on that record, uh, Boris covered Lithium. Um, such a pretty cool cover. Um, speaking of Nirvana covers, another really famous cover of Lithium is by the Polyphonics Free. Them. Yeah, 
Uh, the song is actually the Welsh Slipknot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pr- the festival production office is nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> How many fucking meal tickets? <laughs> uh, this, that song's actually featured in the film The Big Short, which also features Christian Bale playing Doctor Michael Burry, who was one of the guys that originally really uh, uncovered the, the sort of subprime mortgage scandal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before anybody else would believe him, and he. What was it he did? He, he basically shorted the position and lost a lot of money because he was convinced it was going to happen. And uh, it did eventually happen, but everybody was raging at him. Uh, Michael Burry in real life uh, is a really big metal fan. And like as true, wow. as, as true to his character in that, he, he, he did love to play drums too. Uh, in the film, Christian Bale plays, actually plays really badly, but he is actually playing the drums to the Pantera song By Demons Be Driven. Um, there's also a scene in the film where Michael Burry is he ignores somebody who's sitting in front of him by well tell me fuck off basically by putting his headphones in and the song that plays when he hits play is Blood and Thunder remastered on anyway that song's about Moby Dick which was written by Hermione Revel <laughs> uh, and uh, he wrote Bartleby the Scrivener but also we never said we're going to Bartleby yeah. the Scrivener yeah I was, I was yeah. waiting until he finished but we could just say it now uh we're going to Bartleby the Scrivener. <laughs> uh, who chose it? It was some, doki, somebody doki off Doki Doki Panfish. Yeah, yeah, Doki Doki Panfish. Just cut that back in. <laughs> no, I quite like the, yeah. the sort of... Irregularity of yeah. it. Yeah. But also... It's like a circle It's like a scrams. Yeah, yeah, totally. But also, um, in, that, in that short story, Bartleby the Scrivener works for a lawyer on Wall Street, which is also where the big short is. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah oh. Very good. Yeah, so... Uh, all right, Circle Takes the Square. They actually collaborated with uh, 65 Days of Static... On uh, their third record, um, 65 Days' third record, The Destruction of Small Ideas. Uh, I think it's just on the last song, The Conspiracy of Seeds. Uh, 60 di- 65 Days of Static, excellent post rock band. I, I don't know how many records they've done now, they're still going. But in, uh, I think it's interesting that they're still seen as a post rock band because they're really into the territory of electronic oh, yeah, like stuff ma- now. Yeah, it's, definitely. Yeah, they're yeah, they a bit do. like vessels, like they've really transitioned. They do, they moved into. After they did the soundtrack for No Man's for No Man's Sky, and then in 2016 yeah. they did the soundtrack for No Man's let, Sky. Let, hang on, let, 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 are you going to mention about the music on that album? About on that soundtrack, it's all procedurally generated. So they've been working with they now all they really do is work with computers to create music, which is procedurally generated. Uh, I was going to mention that. Okay, cool. <laughs> but I mean, the game is also procedurally yeah. generated. Uh, what was really interesting about that game was like it came out with a whole load of hype. <laughs> um, and I actually, I actually remember we got asked to put on sixty five days of static in Glasgow Science Centre in the, um, you know the sky, the planetarium, planetarium, <laughs> the sky, in the sky, but you know where you see the sky uh, as a launch show for this. But then it, it never quite What's worked out. What's the capacity out. of the sky, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> How many tickets you oversell on that one by? Um, well, standing only. But uh, uh, fuck, I just realised how bad the reception was to No Man's Sky. Yes. Like really bad. I, I remember when it came out and people were like, oh, it's actually a little bit boring and you know, compared to what we thought. But it, there was fucking like death threats to the developers. <laughs> they had to get Scotland Yard in to like Wow. But I mean eventually I think the advertising authority and everything said, oh no, it's they they've done what they said they would do that's just not as good as you thought it might be but apparently it's also it works got now. better it works now like I said, because it it's work developed yeah, yeah, over time <laughs> take like five years <laughs> anyway um one of the huge influences for no man's sky was the work of arthur c clark mm-hmm. um along with like isaac asimov and everything but they directly took a few things from 
specific Arthur C. Clarke uh, novels and works. Arthur C. Clarke, of course, co-wrote the screenplay for 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, possibly the most influential sci-fi film, apart from maybe Metropolis. It's really fucking good. Uh, it's all right, eh? I, I really, so is 2010. Yeah, 2010. Ah, yeah, yeah. That is a fucking sure. unsung movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also very famous for its score, um, its use of classical music, which, I mean, have parodied and copied and, and everything. But uh, the score, as well as, I guess, the film, just its you know sci-fi and space base, was a big influence on the soundtrack to Moonraker. The <laughs> n- 1978 or 1979 Bond film. Is it actually that late? It was made? I thought it was a 60s film. Fuck. Yeah, no, Moonraker was the one that came after Star Wars and they went, oh, fuck, we should put James Bond in space. <laughs> so they put James Bond in space. But what's actually interesting is watching that film, the first hour and a half is actually pretty class as a Bond film. It's like really well shot. Amazing locations are in Brazil and they're in France and stuff. And then just the last hour, they go to, <laughs> go space, to space and they have lasers. And it's <laughs> and then it's there's Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's a, the double entendre. Oh, what what are you, what what are you doing? I'm just attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the bad guy in uh, Moonraker, Hugo Drax, was uh, played by Michel Lonsdale the uh, famous French actor uh, and that famous French actor Michael Lonsdale also played the character of Bartleby the Scrivener in the 1970 version of that thing on the on film <laughs> I think there's been four versions and he played yeah, it, in, few, yeah. did it in 1970 that's cool really good alright uh, Circle Takes a Square from Savannah Georgia uh, by the way Savannah Georgia had the first black church in America Built on the site of a like a like a, a key site from the Underground Railroad, um, Savannah, Georgia, uh, was as a city gifted to Abraham Lincoln by General Sherman on his big march south, his big ultraviolent march south. Um, he spared Savannah, Georgia, uh, because of its beauty, uh, having already burned down Atlanta. <laughs> um, but it was uh, Abraham Lincoln as a Christmas present. Nice. <laughs> no, it's nice um, the Abraham Lincoln Museum in Illinois uh, houses the largest collection of Lincoln artifacts, but it also, as of 2017, contains a series of letters by a certain Mr. Charles Manson. Now, I don't know why Charlie Manson has letters in that museum. <laughs> I'm not really sure. It's, I think he maybe sent them to a journalist, and when he died, the journalist felt compelled to sort of submit them to posterity somehow. But anyway. Like, I think he tried to send them back and tell me Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the 1969 Tate murders, uh, ordered by Charlie Manson, but, you know, committed by others. You know the story, I don't need to go over that. Uh, led to six deaths, including uh, Sharon Tate's unborn child. But and one of the other victims was a celebrated hairstylist uh, and also Charlotte's ex-boyfriend, Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring, that same week, had invited a rising young musician uh, to the party. And that musician's real name was James Ambrose Johnson. Anybody know who that is? Oh, fuck. No. Jimi Hendrix. Is it Brian Wilson? It's Rick James, bitch! <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> Rick James was meant to be at that party, uh, and he didn't go. Uh, guess why? He was too. Because he was fucked. <laughs> he was fucking hungover to fuck. 
So Rick James missed that party. He would have been there uh, had he not been so unbelievably hungover because he'd bumped into Jay Sebring earlier that week uh, and, and had been invited. Um, Rick James, fucking total Rick James. fucking <laughs> disaster of a human being. A maniac. Died at what, like 52 or something of a heart attack. Um, he also produced Party All The Time by Eddie Murphy and mm. Absolute fucking belter of a song. Slammer. Total, total slammer. Uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, live show, Raw, from I think 1987, is that right? Um, features a skit at the very beginning, which is, you know, Eddie Murphy as a kid entertaining his family. And in that skit, one of his uncles is played by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, in 2017's Kong Skull Island, Samuel L. Jackson modelled his character, uh, Preston Packard, on. Ahab, Captain Ahab from Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And Herman Melville wrote Bartleby the Scrivener. Huzzah! I think Kong Skung Island is the only actually good film from that whole series. No, and you know what? I I disagree in the sense that that series now overlaps with Godzilla, and that thought that first Godzilla one with Brian. The first Godzilla was alright. There wasn't enough Godzilla. The Godzilla King of Monsters and Godzilla vs. Kong. I literally had to turn them both off because they were so stupid. But the first Godzilla one they did, what's his name? Is it Brian Cranston? Brian Cranston, yeah. yeah the the fucking size of Godzilla was alone was just a relief because yeah, he yeah, was yeah. just so fucking giant. That yeah. was amazing. Anyway, yeah, there you go. Uh, class, all right, what are we doing next week? Next week, I have decided to put the cat among the pigeons. Um, I mean, I'm conflicted on it, but that's going to make for a really interesting episode because... It's not unsung. The band are absolutely not unsung. But this album, uh, in the context of their catalogue, I think is unsung because it landed really badly with their fans. And I, I really, I don't think it spawned any particularly huge hits compared to their other ones. It is the album Humbug by the Arctic Monkeys. Now, fucking calm yourselves down. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people just repulsed by that. He's just slag screamo and then he's picked an Arctic Monkeys album. What Arctic Monkeys. Humbug album is interesting because after two hugely commercially successful hip indie albums, this band decided to go and do something that seemed like an odd decision. But in doing so, I think changed the direction of their own careers and kind of took an audience with them, I think. Because it still amazes me that Arctic Monkeys, given some of the songs they put out, are as popular as they are. Not because I think they're awful, just because I'm like, this doesn't sound like it should be a big pop song. Why is it so famous? Um, so, yeah, I'm going to enjoy talking about that because I think there's a lot to be said about it. It doesn't it, it, it equate to like a, a, a total endorsement of the band, um, but Yet. let's let's get into it. And we'll be Nexusin, the Arctic Monkeys. Uh, in fact, guys, I've done this every fucking time for the last oh, yeah. few while. Somebody want to come over and do the honours? Mark? Uh, old man noises. Dave, who are we next in the Arctic Monkeys to? We are so glad to be going from off Alex Turner and Co. to <laughs> Baby Son from the Teletubbies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that? Craig. Craig. Ah, that guy. Thanks, Craig. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> Mark, reckon you can do it in one? <laughs> Uh, maybe (laughs) I'll try Alright, join us next week for that Bye Bye